You're listening to Goodness Gracious Grief with Katie Brain. Hi everyone, welcome back to Goodness Gracious Grief. I am Katie Brain and thank you so much to tuning in to my podcast. This is where I just try to have conversations about death and dying and break the taboos about the subject because we are all so rubbish at just talking to each other. And what I really want to get across this year is... Do you have a plan in place? Because if you don't, it can be really difficult for loved ones when you pass away. And I don't mean to be doom and gloom because it's totally not what this podcast is about. But I want to have some really interesting chats this year and I want to hear stories as well. So if you've got a story of when you've lost a loved one and you just want to share your story to help other people then please do get in touch with me. My name's Katie Brain. You can find me by doing a quick search and I am on Twitter as well. Goodness gracious grief. Just get in touch and have a chat with me. I'm always always up for a chat. But what I wanted to kick off this year with is an amazing person who actually lives quite local to me who has just done amazing work at helping others and their families who are facing the death of a loved one. And it all came about because she lost her mother and she didn't want people to have the same experience as she did. It's Liz Pryor and she has just been awarded an MBE for setting up her charity, the Anne Robson Trust. Liz joins me now. Liz, welcome to Goodness Gracious Grief. Thank you so much for joining us. But I've got to start by asking about this MBE because what was your reaction when you found out? Well, I was complete. I couldn't believe it. I thought it might be a wind up, actually, if I'm really honest. I didn't. You just. I just got an email out of the blue from the cabinet office. Was that a bit um, suspicious? Well, you think, mm, I think, you know, what's this? Anyway, I then opened it and it became more and more official uh, because you open the email and then the email's got an attachment and then it's got a very detailed letter in it um, swearing you to secrecy and saying if you want to accept it, you have to do this, this and this. And so, you know, I, I, I quickly realised that it was real and it was really exciting, amazing. A bit overwhelming, actually, if I'm honest. Did you feel like that you deserved the MBA, or was it just, you know, a bit of imposter syndrome? I'm not this person. No, I don't really, to be perfectly honest. I think the team do. I think all of us as an organisation, you know, I, that, that would sit much more comfortably with me than it being about me, if I'm honest, Katie, because I, it's not just me. It really, really isn't. You know, it's what happened to our family and my mum started it. But but the minute you start working in something like this, and you must feel this a bit sometimes with your podcast series, but the minute you start talking about this sort of thing, people start joining you and, and agreeing with you and, and sort of joining the movement. And, and everyone has their own personal story. because So just because the, the charity is named after my mum doesn't mean there are loads of people involved who have got similar experiences um, Maybe not some, maybe not quite as bad as what happened to my mum, but lots of them are not great, and and they, that's why they're involved. Everybody feels really passionately about about the cause, and you know I couldn't have done any of it on my own. So no, I feel it sits a bit, little bit wrongly for it, that it's all about me. I don't like that. I totally understand that. Don't worry. <laughs> um, we'll talk more about the work that the charity has done in a moment. But I just want to go back. And what was your first experience 
of grief? Golly. Um, well, my grandparents died when I was sort of in my mid to late teens. So I suppose that was the first experience I had of death and somebody dying that, I, you know, I knew very, very well and lived close to me and, and sort of suddenly they weren't there anymore. But they were very elderly, both of them. Um, so I think probably my, what my, I would say probably when my dad died, um, he died in 1989. He was 67, so you know, relatively young, and he'd just retired. And my parents had moved from Hop. They lived in Hertfordshire, um, in a village called Sarrat, which is the other side of the county to where I live now, near Speednage. Um And that's where we all grew up. And and they they retired to Suffolk, and they bought a house in Orford, which is a lovely little town on the Suffolk coast. And very soon after they moved there, Dad was diagnosed with bowel and liver cancer. And he was diagnosed, I think, in about October, and he died the following July. And that was devastating for me. I was 23, and it just, I just, it was just overwhelmingly awful. It really affected me, actually. And how how did you and the family cope with the loss of your, your dad at, at such a young age did you looking back now can you reflect on kind of the the feelings and the emotions that you went through at the time I think I was in complete and utter shock for a while you know even if you know it's going to happen when it does happen it's overwhelming and I can't imagine what it must be like for somebody to die when you're not expecting it you know in in an accident or to have a heart attack out of the blue or something awful like that so I, because I, I imagine we had mentally prepared ourselves a bit but I sort of didn't feel like I had I felt completely at sea for a long time after dad died and I how did we cope with it it's a very good question I'm not sure we did cope with it very well if I'm honest no you just you um, become part just of your life on with it yeah yeah and I used to have weird things but I lived in London at the time and I used to think I'd seen him if I was walking down the road or on a bus or something. And I, and I had weird... It was very strange. I, I couldn't believe he'd gone. No, I completely and understand. And I still miss him now, actually. He was, he was a very, very big part of my life and our lives and a very big character. And he... Um, yeah, he's a, it was a massive loss. I have heard you compare your your father's death to your mother's death because when you did lose your, your mum... That was quite sudden and out of the blue. And the way that you compare yeah. both kind of, it, it it does break my heart a little bit because you said your dad had an, a, a good death in a way. Is that right? Well, yes. I, I mean, at the time, I wouldn't have said that. I would have said it was the most horrendous thing that I'd ever experienced. And, that, you know, no, it couldn't be worse. And it was terribly traumatic for me. But I was only quite young then. And I'd never sort of, I didn't sit with my grandparents when they were dying. You know, it was very much kept away from us, which is strange now I look back on it. And I think, but I think that's very common. You know, it used to be before the social care came in, people used to die at home all the time, didn't they? You know, your granny used to be <clears throat> have a bed in the living room and, and that's where they'd die and the family would live around in all around her while she was dying <clears throat> or he was dying. And, and I think that... Since care homes came into being, people have put in them. And, and, and my both my grandparents were in the care home at the end of their life. 
And I, we weren't encouraged to spend time with them, which I think is a tremendous shame. So when my dad died, I think what you're referring to, Katie, is when, when my dad died, we were at home in this beautiful village in, in Suffolk, overlooking the estuary. It was July. It was lovely, beautiful sunshine. Mum and Dad had amazing, a lovely little garden with beautiful roses in it. And, you know, we'd sit out there and his bedroom overlooked the estuary with all the windows open. All of us were there, apart from, sadly, one of my brothers who couldn't be there at the time he died. But he, um, you know, we were all there. We had two amazing Macmillan nurses that looked after all of us and Dad uh, for the last few days of his life. And he, it was very peaceful, unlike my mum who was in hospital and with a suspected broken hip. There was norovirus that was very similar to what the lots of families have experienced in the last couple of years. And we weren't allowed to visit her. And it was incredibly traumatic for her, much more so than it was for us. Um, and she was discharged very surprisingly, in the words of one of her nurses, bright as a button, um, which seems very strange to me, um, because she... When she got home, she died about three hours after she arrived back at her care home. Um, but nobody told us she was dying. So myself and my two brothers weren't with her. My my sisters were. They both lived in Suffolk, so they were able to pop down the road and meet, be there when, when mum got home to the care home. But um, the nurse in charge said to everybody else, really, I don't think it's worth, you know, it's, it's imminent. So how anyone could have said she was bright as a button, I really don't know. Because the ambulance drivers knew she was dying just by the look of her. And they thought she'd been fast-tracked home to die. And in a lot of ways, I'm very glad she was, although I imagine the journey was very traumatic for her in those last hours of her life. You know, you don't want to be moved then. But I'm very glad she was, because otherwise she'd have died on her own in a hospital bed. And that would have just been horrendous. Oh, absolutely. At least my sisters were able to be with her. And how do you relate to kind of everything that's gone on in the past two years? There's been a lot of people who haven't been able to be with mm. with loved ones. That Does that kind of relate to you in a way now? Oh, my goodness, it resonates so much, so much. You know, I, and I, I can remember, we were just talking about this yesterday, I can remember when, and I'm sure you, you and everybody listening will understand what I mean, when the pandemic first hit, in sort of March, April 2020, we used to sit and watch the news every night at five o'clock and the, and the um, press conferences and everything. We were glued to it. Myself and my husband and two daughters were here at the time. And we just, and then you watch the news and hear about these awful stories about families who put people in the back of ambulances and they don't know whether they'll see them ever again. Yeah. It, it, it was just, you know, and that's pretty much what happened to mum. You know, she was admitted to hospital and then we weren't allowed to see her for a week because of norovirus. Um, and so I it, it absolutely resonates with me. And, and that's why I we set up our helpline, really, because we weren't able to work. That, so the charity that I set up in mum's name works with hospitals predominantly to set up help them set up teams of volunteers who volunteer for the hospital, but they work um, with us to, to, uh, train, to, to train them and to get them to sit with patients who are dying and, and support their families because there was no support for us at all when mum was dying or when mum was in hospital. Um, 
and they weren't able to do that during during the pandemic because no one was allowed to visit so in in hospitals including volunteers um and so we set up our helpline to sort of counter it really because i think there was more need during the pandemic than there was before if that's possible I'll come back to the helpline in just a moment, but when you lost your your mother, your your reaction was kind of immediate. You were you were at the forefront, and that's kind of where the momentum for the Anne Robson Trust kind of came from. Is yeah. was that momentum kind of what kept you going, which helped you deal with the grief? I think probably I I was furiously angry that Mum had died and that. She wouldn't have died if she hadn't been in hospital. Um, you know, if she hadn't been admitted that day, I, I, I don't know, she may not still be with us now, but she she would have not died that week. And that made me absolutely furious that that, that had happened. And, and it also made me feel very strongly that what you know, I'm not a shrinking violet, Katie. I don't I'm not worried about talking to people or approaching people or writing letters or you know, trying to get action when I feel it's needed. I, I, I worry about people who don't feel confident to do that and who don't, who can't, who don't have a voice or don't feel they have a voice. Because if that happened to my mum, what happens to everybody else? So I did take on the, the, well, I say I, I took it on with my family. You know, my brothers and sisters were very, very supportive and we all, we all wanted to know what had happened to mum and why it had happened. So we arranged meetings. The coroner opened a case to, because they felt there was a case to be answered. Mum's um, GP said he felt she wouldn't have died if she hadn't been admitted to hospital. She wasn't at the end of her life. She was relatively frail and wobbly, but she didn't... She wasn't dying. Um, and she was 79, so she was a good age, but she wasn't very, very old. Um, so, you know, it, that's what we did. We didn't really get anywhere. We met with the board of the, the hospital and they didn't really have an answer for us, to be honest, because it wasn't one person, you know, not one person caused her to die. It's a systemic problem. And, you know, it's very, very challenging. And that's why I felt compelled to get involved with the NHS and try and see if I can help and do something rather than constantly say, complain about how bad things are I wanted to which I did do for a while I must admit but after a bit I got to a point where I just thought it's no good you know it's a bit like constantly smacking a naughty child it doesn't get better it just becomes devious (laughs) Um, so it's better to not do that and to work out how to get the best out of them rather than keep on telling them they're terrible all the time does that make sense it does and so since setting up the Anne Robson Trust what have your achievements been? I know we've obviously just mentioned the helpline, but what else have you yeah, managed sorry, I've to do? Gone to head, um, so at the beginning, so basically what happened was I worked for a charity um, pre-setting up the Anne Robson Trust that worked with communities around hospitals, and we um, we brought in everything from school children to hair and beauty students, pets of therapy, dogs, uh, choirs pantomime um, cast, anything you could think of, to lift spirits in hospitals and raise, get people up and out of bed in elderly care wards, that sort of thing. So I did that for three or four years and I learned a huge, huge amount about the challenges and complications and red tape and policies that, uh, that, that happen in the NHS. And the, and the 
stresses and strains of, of staff who in the in the majority you know the majority of them are amazing people and work extremely hard there are of course as there are in life always the odd one or two that don't um but you know that's wherever you go in life you, you'll find that but um that sort of laid the 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 sort of foundations for me to be able to um have a better understanding about how things work um and i eventually ended up working directly for or for the director of nursing in fact in the Stevenage uh, Lister Hospital um, in 2016 when she asked me to look at end-of-life care and we set up, myself and two amazing palliative care nurses, set up um, a a team of volunteers who supported people who were dying because they they found that between 15 and 20 people were dying completely on their own um, without any visitors after they'd been admitted at all. Um, and that was the focus of the project right at the beginning. But actually, we found once we were started working with it, that actually the families of, of patients who were dying needed support as well, not just the patients on their own, but those families needed support and, and needed somebody to talk to. So it became really successful really quickly, and it's still running at the Lister, really, and it's, a, I think, a really strong team there now. I left at the end of 2016 to... Um, with the blessing of the director of nursing and, and the hospital to set up a charity to replicate that that project in other hospitals. And I'm very happy to say I managed to do it um, with lots of help from lots of people. And um, by March 2020, we were working with five hospitals in the east of England and with five more that were about to start. But unfortunately, as I'm sure you'll understand, the pandemic came and that whole house of cards fell down, sadly. Um I'm pleased to say that now, a couple of years later, we've got those five hospitals are back up and running again and really, really strongly running teams of volunteers. We've got another eight hospitals that are about to start. We've got three community trusts that are about to start, so we're going to start working with them, um, training volunteers to go into care homes that are run by the community um, NHS Trust, which is really exciting. Um, and also, as you well, we both touched on, uh, we set up our helpline, which was really as a response to the pandemic because we couldn't do what we were supposed to be doing because the volunteers weren't allowed in hospitals. But we knew the need was there and it was even more needed than ever. Um, and lots of the volunteers that did go into hospitals were not able to because they were shielding or they were nervous of going into hospital. So we've got a few volunteers now, amazing volunteers, to answer the lines on on the helpline, and they've got such a lot of depth of experience. Uh, you know, they're amazing people. And who um, who is calling the helpline? What what are people asking oh my goodness. for? So many different things. It's extraordinary. So we get uh, people who have got a terminal diagnosis themselves, and they don't know how to handle it, and they need somebody to talk to, and they're finding it hard. Quite a lot of them find it very hard to talk to their family. Or their family don't want to talk about it. So they need to be able to sort of talk freely with somebody who's not necessarily emotionally involved with them and their life and their family. Um, We also have the flip side of that. So we'll have family members ringing because their mum or auntie or grandma's got a terminal diagnosis and been told they've only got a few months to live and the person with the diagnosis won't talk about it. And the family's struggling. So, and then other times we have 
people recently we had somebody who um is one of seven children grown-up children and her dad has been admitted to hospital um and they were allowed one nominated visitor and how do you choose that between seven grown-up children you know so things things like that um but also quite a lot of nhs staff care home staff people who uh, and we had somebody the other who, who are looking after people who are dying, who are struggling with that. It's a really hard environment to work in. But also we've had um, people who want know that you need to plan for the end of your life, but don't really know where to start. So it, it doesn't have to be a call from somebody who's dying now or whose husband or wife or, or loved one is dying now. It could be somebody who just wants to talk about it and can't, feel more comfortable talking to somebody anonymous than they would talking to somebody they you know they know well so there's a real breadth of 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 different things that come down the line and every time i i am on the helpline i i i'm always a little bit anxious about what might what someone might need support with you know because it is quite challenging what surprises me is what you're doing there with the helpline it's so simple you're you're just giving people a platform to to open up Mm. and talk which we're just bad at as Mm. humans you know having those conversations with our loved ones is so important but it's so difficult for us to do so just providing this platform for people to do it it, it's obviously working you know it was all quite a lot about communication isn't it it's quite a lot about how do you start a conversation with somebody about something that's quite uncomfortable to talk about so I would always say to someone, you know, if you if you want if you want to talk to your mum or or your dad about whether they've planned for the end of their life, I would always encourage somebody to talk about, well, I've just done this for myself. Have you done it for yourself, mum? You know, so so it's not just about challenging your mum who's maybe seventy and you're forty. It may it, it's about doing it in, in an inclusive way. That, that that means it's a conversation for everybody to have because without wanting to be depressing, and I'm sorry, I don't want to bring the tone down <laughs> in your January podcast, um, Katie, but, you know, we are all going to die one day um, and, and we don't advocate talking about it all the time by any means. But if you can talk about it with your family before it's actually happening to you, before it's really real, it's so much easier. I couldn't have said that any better myself. And that that is simply the message I'm trying to get across because yeah. people who do listen to the podcast know that I lost my dad all of a sudden and oh, I didn't sorry. know what he wanted. And I had to make really? all of those decisions myself. And so all I want is for people to go, right, yeah. there's a plan in place. I know mm. what I want when it ends and I'm not going to mm. <laughs> leave everything yeah. for someone else to pick up all the pieces. And Gosh, yeah. that must have been very difficult for you. It was. It's you know I can smile and laugh about it now, but at the time, like if, when I think back, yeah, I was I was twenty twenty seven, twenty six, twenty seven. Mm. I can't remember now. Um, mm. But yeah, to have to go through all of that, and I mean, I had experienced grief before uh, with my grandparents and stuff as well. But like like you said, they were elderly. It, it's expected. But when it does mm. happen, kind of out of the mm. blue, mm. and there's no plan in place, oh, it's a it's a minefield. And just, yes, because not yeah. only are you dealing with your emotions and that massive loss and shock, but you're also trying to work out what would he have wanted. Exactly that. And, and, and I think trying to second-guess that is really, really, it makes it triply hard. I think it's 
it really must be so hard. And I think so, so, you know, to be able to have a plan in place for all of us, really, should we should all, if we, you know, I, I don't think there's, it's not too early ever to, to think about it. Not all the time, as I say. And it might be useful, actually. I don't know if you've ever looked at our website, Katie, but we've got something called our My Wishes Checklist on there, which is a sort of downloadable document. Um, and it's a bit like a crib sheet. So you can you can write down anything that you feel is relevant for you. You know, do you hate wearing pajamas, but you love wearing a nighty in bed? Or, you know, it can be anything. It can be down to any sort of details at all. And it's a very personal document. So I would recommend keeping it somewhere very private, somewhere very secure. Um, but it's something that could sit with your will. Um, you know, it's, it says things like, what, what have you got a funeral plan? If you haven't, what do you want? And then it lists all the different things you might think about. It lists all the things like that you might need to remember, like uh, passwords for your Netflix account, <laughs> passwords for Facebook and Twitter and all your social media. Because, you know, if you haven't, if no one's got them, they will stay there forever. That is exactly what everyone needs, right? What is the website? Where can we download this fill, um, form and okay, fill it out now? The website is www.annewithanerobsontrust.org.uk. In the top menu, it says My Wishes, and you'll find it there. I was laughing to myself there as you were saying that about the pajamas and that because I I put my dad in a, a suit and then I was like oh. why he I think I saw him wear a suit like twice I was like why didn't I put him in a rugby top that would have been oh, much yeah. more appropriate yeah. it's just those oh, simple well, things you know. Yeah, kicking yeah. myself for that one, but no I'm sure mind. he wouldn't have minded that. <laughs> no, I'm sure not. At least he's got some use. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Liz, thank anyway, you so I much. Talk forever, KD. Sorry. No, well, what we have to do, we have to catch up another time mm. and find out more about the work that you're doing because I'm sure now that things are starting to ease, you're going to be busier than ever, um, especially well, with your MBE now as well. Well, thank you. That's really kind of you. Thank you very much. Well, our team effort, I'll say it again, it's an absolute team effort. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Katie Brain. You've been listening to Goodness Gracious Grief. Goodness Gracious Grief.